Greetings and welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church here in Sterling, Colorado. I also am an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Hope you are having a great start to your summer. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or the other places that you listen to this. Uh, share this with your friends. Share this on social media. Uh, get the word out. Hopefully, uh, this podcast, Understanding Christianity, is beneficial to you and you want others to benefit from it. So I appreciate all of my listeners. I appreciate those who uh, give us encouragement. And so thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Today, I want to interact with a question that I often get in the many years that I've been in pastoral ministry, it comes up from time to time. And it's the question that goes like this. What about those who've never heard the gospel? Uh, what about those who live in the unreached people groups of the world, in closed countries that have never had access to the gospel? Uh, do they go to heaven? Do they go to hell? How does God deal with them? What's the destiny of the unevangelized, the unreached? Uh, this is a question I've received many times over the years in pastoral ministry. Now, especially since we are a Reformed church that believes in God's sovereign predestination of individuals to salvation before the foundation of the world, this question is asked a lot. Because how does this question relate to the doctrine of predestination? Let me just give you a little background on our church. Uh, back in 2007... Um, we as elders led our church to adopt and begin praying for what's called an unreached, unengaged people group. Uh, this is a people group that does, ha, has no access to the gospel. There's no known church planning movement. There's no missionary. There's no Bible in their language. And so back in 2007, uh, we adopted this unreached, unengaged people group in the mountain tribal areas of South Asia. And we began praying for them, praying for their salvation. And, and over the years, we've taken numerous mission trips there. Uh, we've partnered with a local church planning pastor whose heart is to reach these people. And so we've had a great um, movement of the Lord in this unreached people group. They're now considered reached. Uh, there's been a Bible translated in their language. There are churches being planted there. And so um, these people are steeped in syncretism between animism and Hinduism. Now, syncretism just means a combination of multiple religions. But animism is basically a worship or fear of your ancestors, that your ancestors are going to come back and haunt you, mixed with Hinduism. And so the question often becomes, well, why would a church like you, like your church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, that believes in unconditional election, that believes in irresistible grace, that believes in Calvinism or Reformed theology, why would you be so active and passionate about evangelizing unreached people groups? And, and the question often comes this way, well, if you guys believe in election, won't they automatically be saved without you going? If it's all up to God to save sinners, then what difference does it make if we go or not? God's going to do what God's going to do, right? So why do you put so much time and energy and prayer and effort into going to unreached people groups as a church? Well, this is not a new issue. It's not a new question. In 1787, William Carey, the father of modern missions, pioneered to India, 
was in a meeting with other pastors, and these pastors leaned towards hyper-Calvinism. And he raised the question about the church's obligation to obey the Great Commission and go to these unreached peoples who had never heard about Jesus. And after William Carey raised this question, uh, the renowned Baptist minister and writer of his day, John Ryland Sr., allegedly stood up and proclaimed this to young William Carey. He said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. This is a hyper-Calvinistic view that God does not use means to bring about the ends of his saving intention. So in 1792, William Carey published an 87-page manuscript popularly known as An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. In in this essay, in this um, 87-page manuscript, often popularly uh, shortened to an inquiry, he set forth a biblical foundation and theology that even though God sovereignly predestined sinners for salvation before the foundation of the world, God also uses means to get the gospel to the unreached. So this is very important in Calvinistic mission circles that, yes, we believe that God does unconditionally elect sinners to salvation, but that God also uses means to call forth those elect among unreached peoples. And the means he uses is missions, evangelism, people being sent by churches to go and to share the gospel to these unreached peoples. Now, there are two extremes when it comes to this question about getting the gospel to unreached people groups. The first is what William Carey experienced many years ago, hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism says that God does not use means. God does not need our going, our preaching, our evangelism to call out his elect. God's going to do what God's going to do, and so if God's going to save those unreached people groups, he'll do it without our aid or without our help or without our going or praying or sharing. So the first extreme is hyper-Calvinism. Now the second extreme is what is called inclusivism or evangelical inclusivism. This is the idea that those who've never heard the gospel can be saved without someone preaching the gospel to them or having any contact with missionaries. This view says that general revelation of nature, creation, conscience, and even some things within their cultural context is sufficient to give them enough information, enough knowledge about a creator, about God. And if they live up to the light they've received, God will either use the Holy Spirit to persuade them to believe in this creator, or they will genuinely seek out God. Now, in this view, there's no conscious knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ, nor is there conscious personal faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So let's ask a question that's been debated since the early church and still causes controversy and heated discussions today. We're not going to discuss the hyper-Calvinism view. We're going to deal with the other extreme. The evangelical inclusivism view. And so here's the question of this podcast. Is general 
revelation sufficient to lead an unreached person to saving faith in Christ. Let me ask it again. Is general revelation, and that means creation, your conscience, is that sufficient to lead an unreached person to saving faith in Christ? Now, in this podcast, we're going to do an historical explanation of how the voices in church history have answered this question. But before we do that, I want to interact with the non-Calvinistic viewpoint of modern provisionists, such as Leighton Flowers and the Bible Brodown guys, who give an affirmative answer. They answer yes to this question. They would say, yes, general revelation is sufficient to lead an unreached person to saving faith in Christ. I was listening to Soteriology 101 a few weeks ago, and I came across an interview that Leighton Flowers had with the Bible Brodown guys, and they addressed this question, what's the fate of the unevangelized? And so we're going to interact with their view and, and historically this issue. Now, before we do this, let's just ask the question, why even address this issue? Is this really a big deal at the end of the day? Cannot one be agnostic on this and say, you know what, we really don't know. The Bible doesn't give enough information. We, we can plead ignorance on this topic. Well, I don't think we can. If we want to be faithful to the teachings of Scripture, we must answer this question biblically. Now, I will say from the very beginning, there has not been a unified consensus in church history on this issue. But there has been what I would call a majority view. Now, just because something's a majority view doesn't necessarily mean that it's correct. There have been a lot of views throughout history that a majority have held that could actually be evil, could actually be wrong, could actually be false. So just because it's a majority view doesn't necessarily mean that it's correct. But I'm just laying my cards out on the table and saying, historically, there's not been a consensus. But there has been a majority view. Now, It's very important that we, within the Reformed tradition, the answer for us, if you hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, if you're a Presbyterian, or you're like me, a Reformed Baptist, you hold to the Second London Baptist Confession, our Reformed confessions answer this question right out of the gate. And within our Reformed confessions, the answer is the consensus that general revelation is not sufficient. So we are saying based upon Scripture and based upon our confessions, that general revelation is not sufficient to lead a person to saving faith in Christ. The non-Calvinistic view, especially from modern-day provisionists like Leighton Flowers and the Bible Brodown guys, is that it is sufficient. So let's just look at how the Westminster Confession of Faith starts. This is, this is the very first sentence of the Westminster Confession, chapter 1 of the Holy Scripture. It's interesting that the very first statement in the Westminster Confession comes right out of the chute and lays the cards on the table with what the Reformed view is on this topic. So here's the first first chapter 1, the first sentence of the Westminster. It says this, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. 
Basically, what they're saying is based upon Romans 1, which we'll get to in a moment. There are the light of nature, there's creation, there's providence, there's, there's enough information in creation to know that there is a creator. But that is not sufficient to lead to salvation in Jesus Christ alone. So that's the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, those of you that know history know that the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession adopts almost verbatim much of the wording of the Westminster. And so the very first sentence of the 1689 is a little bit different. It adds a little bit of a qualifying statement before that, but let me read to you chapter 1, paragraph 1, sentence 1 of the, second, uh, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary unto salvation. So it basically says the same thing as the Westminster. It just has a little bit more wording there about the sufficiency and infallibility of the Scripture. Now, here's where you need to understand the difference between Reformed theology and this newer provisionistic or somewhat, they used to call themselves traditional Southern Baptist theology. The provisionists are not confessional in the sense that they do not hold to the, the historic confessions of the faith, like the Westminster or the Second London Baptist Confession. Um, now, they might hold to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. They might hold to the Baptist Faith and Message 1963 or 1925. They might hold to the 2012 traditional statement of Southern Baptist. But here's the issue. The provisionists hold to the minority view within church history. They are in the minority view that says that general revelation is sufficient to lead to saving faith in Christ. Now, when a view deviates from a, a, a majority consensus throughout history, we need to ask the question, why? Uh, where does this come from? H how did it deviate? Uh, I'm not saying just because a viewpoint has been the historical consensus it automatically means it's the correct one. Again, I've said that. It, it just We have to ask the question, why has there not been a consensus? Well, let's just ask the question, what are the key tenets of evangelical inclusivism. Those that hold that general revelation is sufficient to lead an unreached person, an unevangelized person, to faith in Christ. Now there's a good book. It's called Three Views on the Destiny of the Unevangelized. What about those who've never heard? Um, it's edited by a man named John Sanders. Uh, John Sanders is kind of the leading voice in inclusivism, um, you need to know that he's definitely a non-Calvinist, but you also need to know that he's an open theist. Okay, so he's gone beyond the bounds of just being a non-Calvinist, like a good classical Arminian or, or, or a classical non-Calvinist, but he's gone all the way to the view of an open theist, which is what I would consider to be um, heresy. So here's his position. Okay, so this is from his book. And this is in his chapter, Inclusivism, in that book. He gives, here's the definition. I think it's a pretty succinct definition of inclusivism. Here's what he says. 
Quote, According to the inclusivist view, the Father reaches out to the unevangelized through both the Son and the Spirit by means of general revelation, conscience, and human culture. God does not leave himself without a witness to any people. Salvation for the unevangelized is made possible only by the redemptive work of Jesus, but God applies that work even to those who are ignorant of the atonement. God does this if people respond in trusting faith to the revelation they have. In other words, unevangelized persons may be saved on the basis of Christ's work if they respond in faith to the God who created them. Now let's start with some positives. I, I want to give some positives to this. Um, he does include a Trinitarian understanding of salvation. He does include the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, which is good. I mean, I wrote a book, Your Identity in the Trinity. It's good that he includes a Trinitarian understanding of salvation. And number two, he does say that salvation comes through the atonement of Christ. Uh, this is not pluralism where all paths lead to God. This is not universalism. He does restrict it to the cross of Christ, which is good. So we should give credit to Sanders that this is evangelical inclusivism. It's based upon the atonement of Christ, upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not pluralism where, where someone can still remain a Buddhist or a Hindu and still be a Christian outside of the, the redemptive work of Christ. Now, let's address the weaknesses. Um, one of the things he includes in this is that God reaches out to sinners through human culture. Uh, that's a question that we need to ask biblically. Where, where is that biblically that God reaches through human culture? Uh, there does not seem to be much biblical data to support this idea. Um, in addition, this view assumes libertarian free will. It assumes that if you have enough light, you can seek God and you can live up to that light and that basically you have libertarian free will. Um, it also assumes that there's no sovereign decree of election, that God makes this available to all people. Now, what are some of the key tenets of the evangelical inclusivist view? Let me give you three assertions. Now, this is what I this is kind of what I think are the main three assertions. There's probably other people that would make give more, but these are the ones I kind of want to kind of want to handle in this in this podcast. So, here's assertion 1. And if you do a lot of their reading and you read inclusivists and you read those that believe that general revelation is sufficient to lead a person to saving faith, these are the three arguments or the three assertions or the three things they're going to bring up. So, here's assertion number 1. Since God is love, he must provide every single person with the opportunity to be saved or he would send millions to hell for no fault of their own except that they didn't have a chance to hear the gospel. So God is love. And therefore, logically, he must provide every single person with an opportunity to be saved. If God does not provide an opportunity for every single person to be saved in some way, fashion, or other, then he's not a God of love. So this is a, a, a view that holds a high view of the love of God, which yes, God is love, but there's not a lot of discussion about God's justice, about God's wrath, about God's um, judgment upon sin. There's just this overwhelming uh, sense that, that because God is love, he must then logically provide an opportunity for everyone to be saved. 
Okay, that's assertion number one. Assertion number two, if a person genuinely seeks for God, then in turn, God will give that person more light. Okay, so if you are genuinely seeking for God, you look up at creation, you're an unreached people, and you look up at the moon, and you, you know that there's a creator out there, and you, and you genuinely reach out for something or, or try to figure out who the creator is, God's going to respond to that by giving you more light. Okay, assertion number three. A person only becomes accountable for sin and spiritually dead when they receive the command from God. Sinners are not born with inherited guilt from Adam, but only become a transgressor and accountable at a point when they can understand the law of God. So here's, let me just tell you, the, the, let, me, let me say it in reverse, the, the, three, the three assertions. Assertion one says God must be giving every single, God is obligated to give every single person an opportunity to be saved. Number two, an assumption, an assertion of libertarian free will. And then assertion three, a denial of original sin in Adam and inherited guilt. So these assertions really from the very beginning fly in the face of a lot of the things that we believe the Bible teaches from a reformed perspective. Now what I want to do is I want to play an audio clip from the YouTube um, episode where Leighton Flowers um, had, had an interview with the Bible Brodown guys. Now, I, I can't deal with the entire clip. That would be a long, but I, this is just a, a sampling. Uh, this is, I think, about a five-minute clip. Um, I may stop it and interact with it along the way as we listen to it uh, because I think it does illustrate some of their views, and I want you to hear it from their own mouth. So let's listen to the Bible Brodown guys being interviewed by Leighton Flowers. <coughs> so... Um, Caleb, our own Caleb, who put together our thumbnail for this uh, episode, he asked the question. He said, um, so general revelation, is that enough for someone to believe and be saved? In other words, the, the revelation that is spoken of in Romans chapter 1, uh, his eternal qualities, uh, the, these kinds of things that are clearly made known and understood, are those, are the, is that enough to save somebody? Yeah, uh, one thing that we've we've tried to to really hammer on uh, when we were going over that that episode where we were reviewing my past interview was no revelation saves. Like, <laughs> I mean, let's just be really clear. I don't care how how complicated and intricate you get with someone. It's not the words that are saving. Um, general revelation, God making Himself known, as Romans one puts it, is enough for you to repent and be saved by the work of the Son. So yes, I mean. Paul says it, uh, that if you look at Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says that the righteous walk by faith. And then he says, uh, God's mad at those who don't because he made himself known to them. Like that's mm -hmm. in a nutshell. Right. Right. So if, if somebody believes in general revelation through general revelation in what they know, in other words, you're held accountable for what you, you're, you've been revealed, you know, what, what you know. You're not held accountable for something you don't know, which just intuitively, let's just face it, that makes sense. Uh, as parents, we're not going to hold our children accountable for something they don't know. That is, doesn't make any rational sense. And we believe God's good. He's, he's, not, uh, he's not unjust. And, and so he's not holding people accountable for things they don't know. He's holding them accountable for things they know. And so if you trust in the revelation and the light you know, then it seems to me that God reveals that he's going to work all things together for good for those who love him. He's going to bring more light, more revelation, like Cornelius, like Lydia, like others who are worshipers of God. 
Okay, let's stop there and interact with the statements that are being made. So they, they asked the question, you know, is general revelation sufficient to bring about salvation? And their answer is a little bit nuanced. It's, they said basically it's enough to lead a person to repent and believe. And so Leighton Flowers then says, you know, God is good. There's that affirmation that God is good. God is love. He's not going to hold uh, somebody accountable for something that they don't know. And so there's that issue right there. And then one of the things that Leighton Flowers often says is this is intuitive. Uh, intuitively, we understand this. This is just intuitive. I found that when something is intuitive, it's probably uh, not going to be biblical because most of the teachings of the Bible aren't intuitive. They're counterintuitive. They go against what we would naturally think in our human reasoning. Uh, God's ways are high, higher than our ways. And so uh, just because something's intuitive doesn't necessarily mean that it's biblical. And so one of the things that they were talking about is, you know, God's, God is good and God is love. And so um, God's going to lead you to more light. If you genuinely seek God, he's going to lead you to more light. So let's keep listening. This seems to be the most intuitive understanding of how God would work because it's how a good parent would treat their own children or even their neighbor's children, for example. You know, it doesn't have to be so some some people jump all over you. Well, we're not born God's children and all these kinds of things. We're not like it's not like our children. Okay, well then use a random parking lot of full of children and a person given charge over this random parking lot full of children, a good overseer of these children is going to treat these children this way. They're not going to go around punishing the children who are doing things are holding them accountable for things they don't know about. You know, that's not what a good person does to anyone. So right. it just and seems to be the most intuitive way of understanding how God would work with people. Plus, it seems to be very, very biblically supported. As we will see later when we look at Romans chapter 1 and 2, God does hold people accountable for what they do know. Uh, Leighton is saying here that, you know, intuitively, we're not going to punish a child for something that they didn't know, ignorance of the law. But Paul is going to argue very clearly that unbelievers, unreached people do know. They do know there's a creator, whether by general revelation in chapter one or by conscience in Romans chapter two, they do know. And so God holds them accountable for the information they know. And so we'll address that a little bit later on when we get into the text. But again, we're just interacting with their statements at this point. Let's continue listening. Exactly. It, this that's not just an emotive argument, right? We're right. not just saying that's not fair. That's like literally, it's based on the precedent of how God has worked with people all along, uh, right from Deuteronomy one. Uh, the the people are wandering through the desert after the Exodus, and uh, they've sinned against Him. They've done things that are against Him, and He says, "All right, this whole generation, y'all are out." Like. Um, uh, you, there's two families that are going to make it because they were faithful, and then all the kids because they don't know good and evil yet. You're know, like, wait, he's gonna he's gonna lead them to the promised land because they don't know good and evil. Um, okay, well, I mean, if God's doing it, and we know that God's character is consistent, and this is a little bit of a confusion of categories. He's equating children who have not reached that age where they are held accountable for knowing right from wrong, he's equating that with an adult, unreached person. And so in the Reformed tradition, and even biblically, we would say there's a difference between an adult, unevangelized person, and a child who is not yet 
come to the point of understanding right from wrong. Same thing with a mentally incapable person like my son. My son has a severe um, autism a chromosome disorder that, that makes him what we would call mentally incapable. And so I think there's a different category between infants and mentally incapable versus adults that are unevangelized. Uh, let's keep listening. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's, maybe he's ignore, overlooking ignorance. Um, you get to Leviticus 4 and you see, all right, all the nation of Israel, if you sin, you got to you gotta offer sacrifice. High, high priest has to do something for you. Uh, and if all of you sin in some way that you don't realize it at the time, there's still going to be a sacrifice made to cover that sin of ignorance. And then once it's made known to you, then you repent. Well, so what are we arguing? We're arguing that a child grows up in ignorance. And then once the gospel message is made known to them, then the expectation is they repent. It's consistent with God's character. He established that precedent. We're not just doing it because we're like, you know, love and everything. Yeah. And there's a, a, a plethora of scriptures that all support this, you know, even it the is. idea about um, the age of accountability. I mean, there's over, there's, scripture after scripture that speak of that. And, and Paul, we think, speaks of that in Romans 7, where he says, I was once alive, right, apart from the law, but when sin came alive, I died, right? So we see that as, right, when Paul was a child in ignorance, and when he gained that understanding, that knowledge, and sin came alive, like he recognized that he was a sinner, then he died, right? Where he became accountable, accountable. Yeah. right? Like he, he, as a child, he didn't know good and evil. He couldn't yet refuse evil or, or choose good. And then once that sin became alive, he died. That's now, he, he's now accountable for the sins that he's committing, right? In open rebellion. You know, there's sins of ignorance and there's sins of defiance. And scripture makes clear that God overlooks sins of ignorance and that's covered by the high priest and that sins of defiance, those are the things that you are repenting of and, and turning from your sin and need that reconciliation and atonement from. Okay, let's deal with their argument about Romans chapter 7 and their argument about Paul. They're assuming that Paul is talking about when he was an infant or when he was young, and they're kind of basically saying that when Paul became aware of the law is when he spiritually died. Uh, again, this is almost borderline Pelagianism where it's, it's sin by imitation as opposed to inherited sin from Adam. But let's just read Romans seven ten through 13. Paul says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What Paul is saying here is the problem is not the Ten Commandments, but the sin that is in us that's already there. We are already willing and able to break God's law because of original sin. And so when the commandment comes to us with specificity, like do not steal, do not murder, that sin in us is aroused to want to do what we should not do. And so in verse 12, Paul says that God's law is holy, righteous, and good. It reflects the character, uh, character of an absolutely holy God. The law is good because obedience to it brings blessing and not harm. Uh, the Ten Commandments is never a way to earn our salvation, obviously, because that would nullify everything else Paul says. But basically he's saying the law is good in and of itself. But in verse 13, he said, Did that law, which is good, bring death? He said, No way. 
The real issue was the sin nature that he was born with that led to death. What the law did was only expose what was already deep in Paul's heart. The sin was already there. The law just gave a name to it. The law gave a specific name to the sin and showed that it was an offense to God. And the ultimate issue is that the law shows us the exceeding sinfulness of sin. That sin is truly sinful beyond measure. And then at the very end there, they talked about God overlooks sins of ignorance and only punishes sins of defiance. And they go back to Leviticus chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 15 that talk about uh, sins of what they would call um, uh, unaware sins or, or, or sins that you, didn't, that you didn't commit unintentional sins. Unintentional sins versus high-handed sins. Now, here's an assumption that they bring to the table. They assume that you are only punished for actions that you do and that there's no guilt for sin nature. In other words, this view says you're not held accountable for Adam's original sin and the inherited guilt that you're born with, you are only held accountable, you are only punishable when you actually commit an infraction. And one of the things we understand about the book of Hebrews is that the book of Hebrews addresses that situation, that yes, in the Old Testament, um, the sacrificial system was incomplete. In Hebrews 10, 10 through 14, and by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the argument here is that the Old Testament animal sacrifices could never completely forgive all sin. Year after year, there was the Day of Atonement. But that Day of Atonement was never once and for all. And only outward sins were forgiven on the Day of Atonement. The sacrifices of bulls and goats could never get to the heart of a person, could never cleanse them from within. And here was the major problem for Israel. Only unintentional sins were actually atoned for in the burnt offerings. If an Israelite committed what was called a high-handed sin or an intentional flagrant sin, that was not atoned for on the Day of Atonement. So there still had to be atonement for unintentional sins. You go back to Numbers 15, and it talks about the penalty for that being stoning. But then you find out in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the, the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? So even if you're going to affirm that God overlooks sins of ignorance and only punishes sins of defiance, the writer of Hebrews takes it a step further and says that not only do outward sins of ignorance need to be atoned for for Christ, but also our sin nature, our Conscience needs to be purified. We need an inward cleansing that gets to the root of our depraved nature. This is an inward cleansing of the whole person before the living God. And so Jesus not only died to forgive actual sins we commit, but he died for our sin nature as well. 
He died to overcome the pollution of original sin inherited from Adam. This is a huge difference in our views. Okay, the non-Calvinist view, um, some of them deny original sin altogether that we've inherited from Adam. And others will deny inherited guilt from Adam. So there's, there's some difference there. And so when we think about the, the conversation that they were having there, you can kind of get a flavor for where they're coming from in this evangelical inclusive view. But let me give you some other um, other information from the Bible Brodown guys as I went to their website and looked at their frequently asked questions and read some of their articles. And so this is what they would say on their website. This inclination to sin, however, should not be confused with accountability for sin. At the appropriate time in everyone's life, they receive the command from God, Romans 7, 9. It is this command that causes spiritual death. So they're denying that you're born spiritually dead in Adam. You only become spiritually dead when you receive the command from God. So they would say that the law doesn't just expose what's already there, that you're already spiritually dead. The law just gives a name to it, which is what the reform view is. They would say that you weren't spiritually dead until the law came, and it's the law that actually made you spiritually dead. Not just the law revealed to you what was already in there. Upon receiving this command, each person then becomes accountable for the sins they have and will commit. The spiritual death is a state in which a person is separated from God because of the debt they owe for their sins. Spiritual death is not a state of inability. It is a label placed on someone who will suffer the second death if they do not repent in faith. There, there it goes again. They're just stating it, what I've just stated, that they do not believe in spiritual inability. They do not believe in, in spiritual deadness. They believe that that actually makes you separated from God when you get that law revealed to you. A lot of times the inclusivists will appeal to Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, to talk about how the conscience, in addition to general revelation, is sufficient to lead a person to faith in Christ. And so Romans 2, 14 through 16 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What Paul is arguing here is there is such a thing as natural law that is innate in people who know right from wrong. Now, in the context of unreached people groups that don't have special revelation, don't know the Ten Commandments, don't know God's Word. They may not know the specifics of the law of Moses. But what Paul is arguing is they do know intuitively that it's wrong to murder, steal, lie, and disobey parents. These Gentiles, as Paul's making the comparison there in Romans 2 versus the Jews, they may not know the Ten Commandments, but they're obeying them in principle because they have an unwritten law amongst themselves that murder is sin, stealing is sin, and on and on. So the Jews had the law. And because they had the law, they were more responsible for keeping it. And they failed it and thus deserved judgment. There was no special privilege to being a Jew. In fact, the burden was more severe because they did have the written law. 
Yet the Gentiles have no excuse to say they shouldn't be held accountable for what they don't know in the Ten Commandments because God has given them a conscience and they internally know right from wrong and are still held accountable. I said I was going to come back to this. This is one of the the statements that, that was made earlier about God does not hold people accountable for what they don't know. Paul says that their conflicting thoughts accuse them and excuse them. What does he mean by that? Well, think of it this way. A pagan Gentile does not know the Ten Commandments. But let's say he's tempted to go into his neighbor's house and steal something valuable. Now, he may think twice about doing it because his conscience and societal pressure would tell him that it would be a bad thing. And he may get caught. So, it accuses him of the sin, and so he doesn't do it. Yet on another day, he decides to go for it. He decides to go in and steal the item. And his conscience excuses him and says that he can get away with it because nobody will know about it. He'll do it in secret. Now, there's no written objective Ten Commandments in his life that says, Thou shalt not steal that he's learned in the synagogue or growing up, but there is in his conscience a moral sense of right and wrong in his heart and in his conscience and collectively among his culture that says stealing is wrong. So whether stealing is labeled, that's a key word, labeled, in the Ten Commandments, and you've known not to do it your whole life, which would describe a Jew, or... Your conscience and society tells you that stealing is wrong, a Gentile. The bottom line is that if you steal, you are guilty for the action of stealing. And that action of stealing stems from a heart of sinful desire. The heart of envy, the heart of lust, the heart of selfishness, the corrupt heart that you're born with that leads you to commit specific actions. And so, listen to what D.A. Carson says. He provides some pretty good insight here on this passage of Scripture. He says, quote, Paul's point then is that even those without the law must admit that distinctions between right and wrong are found everywhere. And everywhere people fall short and sometimes fail to live up to whatever light they have. That is very different from saying some pagans so live up to the light they have that they turn to God, reveal to nature, and call to Him for mercy. These texts do not hint at such a vision. Moreover, the burden of Paul's argument from Romans 1.18 to 3.20 is to demonstrate that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Let's say for argument's sake that an unreached person follows their conscience and tries to do the right thing or they try to live up to the light that they received. And they're, they're doing the best that they can with what they have. Well, what does that get them? Paul says in Galatians 3, 10-14, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So, even if a pagan, unreached person could live up to the light of nature, or they could 
somehow try to obey the best they can with their conscience, Paul says even if they could do this, they're still under a curse. The Jew, for not obeying the written word that they knew in the Ten Commandments, the pagan Gentile, for not following the law of their conscience. So whether you're a Jew who's had the written law your entire life, or whether you're an unreached person who's never had special revelation, you just have creation and conscience, Paul's point all throughout Romans 1-3 through is that both are without excuse. It's enough to condemn you. It's enough to make you punishable. It's not enough to lead you to receive more light or to lead you to faith in Christ. Now, what's the historic majority answer to the issue of general revelation? How have scholars and pastors throughout church history understood Romans 1.18 through 20, especially verse 20. So let's go back and, and let's, let's backtrack because Romans 2 deals more with the conscience in the heart of a Gentile and how even the conscience is not enough to lead you to faith in Christ. It only condemns because you don't live up to it. And then in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about general revelation or creation. So Romans 1, 18 through 20, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. That last statement, they are without excuse. So what is that? What is the majority view through history on that particular issue? They are without excuse. What, what is the majority view? Interestingly, Thomas Oden, he's an Arminian scholar, not a Calvinist. He wrote an article in the Journal of Evangelical Theological Society back in March of 1998. And his argument was that there is a historical consensus of the church fathers that general revelation is not sufficient for saving faith. That there needs to be special revelation of the gospel through a human messenger. Now, this is his argument. There's been pushback on this because, again, I would say there's not been a consensus throughout church history. He's arguing that in the early church, the patristics, there was a consensus. And so in this article, he provides source material from Athanasius, Basil, Gregory of Nazianzus, John Chrysostom, Ambrose, Jerome, Augustine, Cyprian of Carthage, Cyril of Jerusalem, and Gregory of Nyssa, and Tertullian. And this is what he concludes in his article. Again, non-Calvinist, Arminian scholar saying that there's been a general consensus in the early church on this issue. He, He says this, quote, We conclude that there is a substantive consensus of classic Christian commentary on Romans 1, 18 through following that confirms with Paul that all humanity is offered some true, even if limited, knowledge of God by contemplating the majesty and goodness of God in the whole creation. But the ancient Christian writers did not presume or imagine from this that such knowledge could constitute a saving knowledge of God. In time, it became appropriated and reconfirmed by Luther, Calvin, Wesley, and North American evangelical revivalism as rightly and thoroughly grounded in Scripture. 
Now, I'm going to disagree with him on Wesley because we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. So, there has not been a consensus. He argues there is. Now, in the early church, Justin Martyr, around A.D. 100, in his first apology, wrote this, quote, We've been taught that Christ is the firstborn of God, and we've declared above that He is the Word of whom every race of men were partakers, and those who lived reasonably are Christians, even though they have been thought atheists, as among the Greeks, Socrates, and Heraclitus, and men like them. So Justin Martyr is one of the famous church fathers to say that you could have a holy pagan. If you lived a, a good, moral, upright life as a Greek philosopher like Socrates, you could still be saved. Now, what's the official position of the Roman Catholic Church? This is articulated in Vatican II, in section 16 of Lumen Gentium, we read this, official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, quote, Those also can attain to everlasting salvation, who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or His church, yet sincerely seek God, and moved by grace, strive by their deeds to do His will as it is known to them through the dictates of conscience. Now, I would submit to you the Roman Catholic view from Vatican II is the exact same view that Leighton Flowers and the Bible Bro Down guys and provisionism affirms. What are the elements of the Roman Catholic view? Number one, sinners have the ability to sincerely seek God. Same thing as provisionism. Number two, God moves them by grace. Now, that grace is not defined. Uh, the the evangelical inclusivists say that God's Spirit moves. He persuades. And then, number three, they strive to live up to the light they've received. God will reward you with more light if you live up to the light you've received. The exact same tenets of what we just heard from the provisionists. Now, the only difference is, let's be fair, the provisionists are stronger on the atonement, being the basis for the salvation. Now, this position that general revelation is sufficient for saving faith in Christ can be found among some of the early Protestant reformers. Ulrich Zwingli held to this. Zwingli proposed that pre-Christian Greeks like Socrates would be saved as well as others. He kind of held the same view as Justin Martyr. Arminius, Jacob Arminius. He says this in the works of Jacob Arminius, Volume 1, Article 8, Quote, the ordinary means and instrument of conversion is the preaching of the divine word by mortal men, to which therefore all persons are bound. But the Holy Spirit has not so bound himself to this method as to be unable to operate in an extraordinary way without the intervention of human age when it seemed good to himself. This very common sentence obtains our high approval. What peril or error can there be in any man saying God converts great numbers of persons, that is very many, by the internal revelation of the Holy Spirit or by the ministry of angels, provided it be at the same time stated that no one is converted except by this very word and by the meaning of this word, which God sends by men to those communities or nations whom he hath purposed to unite to himself. Now this almost sounds like Calvinism. And I would, I would somewhat agree with what Arminius says. He basically says the ordinary means that God uses to convert the heathen is the preaching of the gospel by 
human messengers. But the Holy Spirit is not bound to that method alone. There can be special circumstances in extraordinary ways where the Holy Spirit can internally do a work in a person to bring them to faith. And God can do that through the Holy Spirit. And I, it's interesting that the very last statement Arminius says there is that um, whom God hath purposed to unite to himself, it almost sounds like God limits this only to the elect. Now, this may be from an Arminian standpoint that God only does this to those whom he foresees will respond to that grace. But at least there's a little bit of a qualifier there that Arminius says, now, I'm not going to go so far as just to make a blanket statement. This is the, the primary means is the preaching of the word, but God can use um, extra ways of doing that. Now, let's talk about John Wesley. Um, I think he was a hopeful inclusivist. Um, he, he preached a sermon, Sermon 106. It's called On Faith. Listen to, to John Wesley. Quote, It cannot be doubted, but this plea, a lack of knowledge, will avail for millions of modern heathens. Inasmuch as to them little is given, of them little will be required. As to the ancient heathens, millions of them likewise were savages. No more thereof, will be expected of them than living up to the light they had. But many of them, especially in the civilized nations, we have great reason to hope, although they lived among heathens, yet were quite of another spirit, being taught of God by His inward voice, all the essentials of true religion. Yea, and so was that Mahatman, that would have been a Muslim, an Arabian, who a century or two ago wrote the life of Haim Yakan. The story seems to be feigned, but it contains all the principles of pure religion and undefiled. So Wesley is saying that there may be those that are Muslims and those that are in Arabia and those that are in areas that are unreached that God did an inward work to reveal and they lived up to the light they have and there's reason to hope that they are saved. That's John Wesley. Now, C.S. Lewis... I would take him in a different category altogether. I would say that John Wesley is an evangelical inclusivist. I would say that Arminius is an evangelical inclusivist based upon his statement. But C.S. Lewis goes way further than I think even the Bible Brodown guys or Leighton Flowers would go. So C.S. Lewis, at the, at the very end of his famous book, Mere Christianity, in, affirms more of a pluralistic view. So let me quote to you C.S. Lewis. He says, quote, There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by Him that they are His in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. There are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. For example, a Buddhist of goodwill may be led to concentrate more and more on the Buddhist teaching about mercy and to leave in the background, though he might still believe the Buddhist teaching on certain points. Many a good pagan long before Christ's birth may have been in this position. I think that's a further view than Leighton Flowers and the Bible Brodown guys would want to go. So again, there has not been an historical consensus. But there has been a majority view. 
I would say more on the Arminian side when you've got John Wesley, Jacob Arminius, early church father Justin Martyr. Those seem to be the ones that hold to um, the minority view. So let's take a survey of major scholars and commentaries from the time of Thomas Aquinas to today, and let's hear what I believe is the majority consensus on answering this question. Thomas Aquinas held that while salvation cannot be realized by means of natural revelation alone, a great amount of true knowledge of God can be gained from general revelation. He's basically saying you can know a lot about God from general revelation, which we would all affirm, Romans chapter 1, but that you cannot understand saving knowledge through that. Let's listen to John Calvin. John Calvin says, Yet let this difference be remembered, that the manifestation of God by which he makes his glory known in his creation is, with regard to the light itself, sufficiently clear but that on account of our blindness, it is not found to be sufficient. But this knowledge of God, which avails only to take away excuse, differs greatly from that which brings salvation. Calvin basically argues the the initial reform view here, that the problem is not the general revelation. The problem is not creation. That's not the problem. God has made himself plain. The problem is our sin, our suppression of the truth. We can know certain things about God through creation, but that does not take away our excuse. We are without excuse, and that does not lead to salvation. Robert Haldane was a Scottish theologian of the early 1800s, and he gives a very strong statement in his commentary on Romans. Listen to what he says. Quote, Paul does not assert that God, in his revelation to them, talking about the unreached pagans, called them to repentance, or that he held out to them some hope of salvation but affirms that the revelation renders them inexcusable. This clearly shows that in the whole of the dispensation of the heathen, there was no revelation of mercy and no accompanying spirit of grace as there had been to the Jews. It must not be supposed then that he regards it as containing in itself a revelation of grace in any matter whatsoever. For this is an idea opposed to the whole train of his thought, They are inexcusable because their natural corruption is thus discovered. For they are convicted of being sinners and consequently alienated from communion with God and subject to condemnation, which is thus to be shown just. So he basically has got a very, very strong statement that says the Jews were given special revelation, God's grace, the oracles, the sacrificial system. But in Romans chapter 1, the pagan Gentiles, they had no knowledge of God's saving grace, no opportunity for repentance, no mercy. They are without excuse and they are condemned. General revelation was not sufficient to lead them to faith in Christ. Charles Hodge, the Princeton theologian, around 1835, says this, quote, Though God's revelation in his deeds is sufficient to give men no excuse, it does not follow that it is enough to lead men blinded by sin to a saving knowledge of himself. That's almost pretty much quoting Calvin there. Herman Bavink, probably one of the greatest Dutch theologians of the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, listen to Herman Bavink. 
It is the unanimous conviction of Christian theologians that general revelation is inadequate. Now that's a strong statement for him to say it's the unanimous conviction. I would say, Bavinka, I don't think it's the unanimous conviction because we've seen some exceptions in church history, but he's making that statement. He says, quote, The reasons are clear. General revelation fails to point us to sin, divine wrath, and grace. What knowledge of God is given in general revelation is uncertain, inconsistent, mixed with error, and unattainable for most people. And finally, no concrete religion has ever existed that matches what deists and history of religion scholars contend is the essential core of natural, rational religion in general. There is no temple dedicated to deism, no cultic ritual that nourishes the faith of naturalists and materialists. Now, it's very interesting that the arguments that he makes, he says general revelation is going to reveal some things about God, his divine nature, his power, but it's going to not give the issues related to sin. It's not going to give an issue related to grace, the need for grace, what Christ did. And then he says, even if you could attain some knowledge about God, what you're going to get from general revelation is inconsistent. It's not going to be foolproof. It's going to have error, and most people aren't going to reach that. And then he says a very interesting, very interesting argument. He says the third argument is that if there was such a knowledge of salvation, then there would be a consistent religion throughout all unreached people groups that would reveal this. There would be some type of um, ritual. There would be some type of unified um, understanding across all unreached people groups. And he says because there's not, that proves that general revelation is insufficient. Louis Burkhoff, another probably the best um, systematic theologian, I, lo I love his systematic theology, argues that there was a general consensus between both Protestants and Catholics during the time of the Revo Reformation. He says that before Vatican II, which was in the 60s, I think, he says like during the Protestant Reformation, there was a consensus between Protestants and Catholics on this issue, that general revelation was insufficient for salvation. But then he says that in the 18th century, you started having deists and the rationalists and the, the Pelagians and um, you know, basically the Enlightenment began influencing the church and he lays the blame at Schleiermacher, Friedrich Schleiermacher, the father of modern liberalism, to move the church away from this view towards universalism. He says this, quote, By general revelation we receive some knowledge of God, of His power, goodness, and wisdom, but we do not learn to know Christ, the highest revelation of God, in His redemptive work and in His transforming power. Okay, let's move into more of the mid-20th uh, century Let's talk about Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, quote, Man, natural man in sin, by studying creation and providence in history, will never arrive at a knowledge of salvation. In other words, general revelation does not save us. We need a special revelation in order to be saved. In creation and providence and in history, there's not enough knowledge to save us. You will not find the love of God there nor will you find the grace of God, nor the mercy and the compassion of God. 
But you will find his greatness, his glory, his majesty, his might, his dominion, his justice, his righteousness, yes, and his holiness and measure. This revelation which God has given and which remains is not enough to save man, but it is enough to render man inexcusable for his godlessness and sinfulness. Okay, Leon Morris, moderate Calvinist, would not basically be like highly reformed or modified Calvinist. Leon Morris, the Australian commentator, says this, quote, God has given a revelation in nature, but people have closed their eyes to it. How then could they possibly see? But it's their own fault that they do not. They are without excuse. Again, he's kind of in a, in a roundabout way saying it's human sin that prevents that from happening. Not the revelation that God gives through nature, but sin. Okay, John Stott. Quote, for what Paul says here is that through general revelation, people can know God's power, deity, and glory, not His saving grace through Christ, and that this knowledge is not enough to save them, but rather to condemn them because they did not live up to it. John Stott's probably the most concise commentator. I like his, commenta- I like his books because uh, he says things very succinctly. He gets to the point. Okay, Tom Schreiner, professor at Southern Seminary, New Testament scholar, in his Baker exegetical commentary on Romans. Quote, to posit that anyone could experience the saving righteousness of God through natural revelation would run roughshod over the intention of this text. The argument is not that most people are under the power of sin, but that all people, without exception, are under the dominion of sin. Faith becomes a reality only through the preached word. Okay, Colin Cruz, the pillar commentary. I'm not sure what Colin Cruz's um, theology is. Usually the pillar commentary leans more reformed. But he says this in the pillar commentary on Romans. Quote, the majority of scholars, okay, he's making a statement here. The majority of scholars, even those who discern a natural theology of some sorts in Romans 1, 19 and 20, emphasize that it was not Paul's purpose to provide one, nor that he thought such knowledge would be saving, but rather they insist that he employed it to highlight human culpability, that human beings are without excuse. Now, he's got a footnote here. He says the majority of scholars. Now, when you say the majority of scholars or there's been a a unanimous consensus, you need to provide some type of proof for that. Okay, you know, when I wrote my doctoral thesis, you can't just make assertions without providing some type of proof. And so he does provide a footnote. Now, again, he's not going to list all the majority of scholars, but it's very interesting that in this footnote, he provides N.T. Wright and Ben Witherington two non-Calvinists. Now, I went back to try to find what N.T. Wright and Ben Witherington had said on this. I could not find their statements on this, so I'm trusting that Cruz in his footnote, because it is a published work, is accurately reflecting their view. And then, finally, Douglas Moo, probably the best modern-day commentary on the book of Romans. Quote, Paul's gospel and his urgency in preaching it is to realize that natural revelation leads not to salvation, but to the demonstration that God's condemnation is just. People are without excuse. Again, a very succinct statement. Now, there is one exception out there. His name's Terrence Thiessen. He is an inclusivist, but he is a Reformed monergist. He believes in Reformed theology. 
unconditional election. And I like what he says here. I can agree with him to an extent. He says this, quote, I find no biblical examples of people who were saved through general revelation alone. In principle, it is possible that God might graciously save someone through general revelation by eliciting the appropriate kind of faith in that person's heart and mind. That's a very carefully worded statement. Number one, he makes two good points. Number one, he says there's no biblical example of a lost person being saved by general revelation. In other words, the idea of holy pagans in the Old Testament, uh, everybody that was saved in the Old Testament and the New Testament was saved by some type of special revelation. And then number two, he views it as a possibility. He says it's possible that God can save an unreached person, but it would be monergistic. It would be because God would sovereignly grant the saving faith. In other words, it would be one of God's elect. God would work in that person's heart to bring about the faith. There would not be any libertarian free will where they're seeking God, but God would actually create the faith in that person that would be the saving faith that's required for salvation. Now, my conclusion would be that God can most certainly do this. And then if he does do that, that person was chosen before the foundation of the world as one of the elect. That person, if God were to save him or her, does not have libertarian free will to seek God. God doesn't reward them or grant them more light based upon their obedience to living up to that light. They were saved by sovereign regeneration that does an inward change in the heart to birth saving faith. Alistair McGrath also holds to this view. Now, we need to remember a few things that the inclusivists don't agree with. Let's just continue to show the, the view that the, the non-reformed understanding versus the reformed understanding. Number one, we assert that God is not obligated to provide all people with the possibility of salvation. We don't make the leap that they make because God is love, he must obviously then, logically, be obligated to provide all people with an opportunity. Again, the inclusivists assume that since God is love, he's obligated, or he must provide all people in all times with the same opportunity for salvation. Now, we would say, no, this denies God's sovereign decree. This denies God's unconditional election. God has chosen not to provide a witness in all places, in all times. There have been people living in unreached people groups for thousands of years that have never had a missionary, never had the gospel, never heard about Jesus, that have died and gone to hell without ever hearing, and God is under no obligation to save anyone. Okay. Second, we also assert that God most often, I say most often, uses His Word to interpret and supplement His works. In other words, yes, general revelation is revelatory. It does reveal things about God, but it's not sufficient on its own. There has to come special revelation behind that to explain what God has done, to bring explanation to God's power and God's working and, and God's salvation through Jesus Christ. Uh, let me give you an example of Rahab. 
Many people argue that Rahab was a holy pagan. You know the story, the spies go into Jericho and they, uh, Rahab's a prostitute and she hides them in her inn upstairs on the roof. They hide among the, the thatch and, and that whole story. But in Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, listen to, listen to this. Before the men lay down, she, that's Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. It's interesting that God used the testimonies of others to awaken faith in Rahab. She had heard of the Red Sea crossing. She had heard of the two military campaigns with the two kings of the Amorites. God's word had come to her. Now, you may ask the question, well, how in the world did she hear about this? How did she hear about God's word or workings? Well, it doesn't take much to figure it out. She's a prostitute. She probably heard these traveling merchants come in and tell these stories of the God of Israel, the very men that paid her for her services. And she began to hear these testimonies about God's power and His sovereignty, and God used these to awaken faith in her. He begins to open her heart to Himself. And so how did she respond when she heard these testimonies? Verse 11, it said, Her heart melted in fear. She came under strong conviction that the God of Israel is powerful. Sovereign and amazing. And so one of the things that you notice about Rahab is that she had the word of God explained to her. It wasn't just looking up at the heavens, but she had testimonies from people talking about these things. And so um, there has to be an explanation behind the works of God with the words of God. And then one of the things that we need to make very clear is that Sinners are not ultimately judged for rejecting Christ. That's what you'll often hear from the provisionists. Sinners are ultimately judged for rejecting Jesus. Well, if a person never has the opportunity to hear, then they don't have an opportunity to reject. So are those people then not judged for not rejecting because they never had a chance to hear? What we would say is that people are judged for original sin, Original guilt inherited from Adam, the suppression of truth of God and unrighteousness, and their own individual sins. There's multiple layers of why we're judged. Yes, you're judged for rejecting Christ, but if you never heard him, you're rejected for, I mean, you're, you're judged for your sin, for being born in sin. Romans 3, 9-12, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's why we're judged. We're judged for being under the power of sin. Original sin, inherited guilt, and our individual actions. Romans five eighteen through 21 Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam's one trespass led to condemnation. Adam's one act of disobedience made us sinners. So we are under condemnation for Adam's sin. That's why we are judged. That's what brings condemnation. Adam's sin that was imputed to us when he sinned in the garden. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because there's a huge difference in theology between the Reformed majority view through history and the non-Reformed minority view. Because in this view, the provisionists, what they affirm and what they deny when it comes to this view of what about those who've never heard. They deny total inability from birth. They deny original inherited guilt from Adam. They affirm libertarian free will. They deny unconditional election, that God chooses individuals for salvation before the foundation of the world. They do affirm that God is obligated to give everyone a chance because He's love and has to give everybody a chance. They deny irresistible grace, that God sovereignly regenerates someone and grants them saving faith. What they affirm is that the Holy Spirit can convict and He can work inwardly in people without the preaching of the Word. He can woo, He can persuade, He can move a person to seek more light, but ultimately that resides in the person to be able to have the libertarian free will to do that. And so, I want to close by reading chapter 20 of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. Chapter 20, paragraph 3, under chapter 20, the gospel and the extent of grace. The gospel has been revealed to sinners in various times and in different places, along with the promises and precepts describing the obedience it requires. The particular nations and individuals who are granted this revelation are chosen solely according to the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. This choice does not depend on any promise to those who demonstrate good stewardship of their natural abilities based on common light received apart from the gospel. No one has ever done this, nor can anyone do so. Therefore, in every age, the preaching of the gospel to individuals and nations has been granted in widely varying degrees of expansion and contraction according to the counsel of the will of God. Again, there, the confession is basically saying, that it is God's sovereign prerogative in the history of the world who gets the gospel. It's under His sovereign purview. And God grants that not based upon people living up to the light they have received. God doesn't do that apart from the preaching of the gospel. God does that through individuals going to the nations with the preached word of God. So how does this impact missions to unreached people groups? Let's go back to the very original question. Why do we send missionaries? If the Spirit is convicting and working in all people everywhere, then why do we need to bring the special revelation of the gospel of Christ? Why do we need to bring that? Would not the general revelation be sufficient to enable a free will response to live up to the light given? 
if the Holy Spirit's working before we get there without the word being preached, then why would we even go? It seems like it would just be the general revelation would be sufficient. And if there's no original sin or inherited guilt that renders all people born under God's wrath, then there's no need to give people an opportunity to hear because if they hear, then they're accountable for rejecting the gospel. They were better off before we came because they were better off for not rejecting what they hadn't heard. The best thing we could do is stay home and pray the Holy Spirit does a really good job of persuasion to help unreached people seek Christ. In all biblical accounts of conversion in the New Testament, every person came into contact with a human messenger who gave them special revelation. Even if it was a dream or something miraculous, a human messenger came and preached the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to them and called them to repent and trust in Jesus. We never see God rewarding a person with more light by their ability to live up to the light they receive from nature or conscience. If a messenger does come to an unreached person, we can affirm from the whole teaching of Scripture that this was God's providential dealing in time with one of His elect to ensure that they heard the gospel and they came to saving faith in Christ alone. John 3, 18-20, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work be exposed. Unreached people and lost people today love darkness. They don't love the light. They don't live up to the light. They're living in darkness and they are condemned already. They're under God's wrath already. The only way you come out of being under God's wrath is by believing in the Son of God consciously. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then Romans 10.9-17, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How are people saved? Through hearing. How do people call upon the name of the Lord? Through preaching. And so this is a very important discussion about how does God actually reach unreached people? He does it through human messengers who go with a passion to the nations, to the unreached people groups, to preach the gospel to them as the only hope of their salvation. 
So hopefully you've seen the differences between the two views. I know this has maybe been a little bit more technical and in-depth, a little bit longer, but um, this has been brewing in my heart and mind for a few weeks now, and I wanted to come in and address these issues in this lengthy podcast. And so thank you for spending the whole time listening to this. God bless you. May you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.